how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Joshua Part 1. Now, it's the sixth book in the Old Testament, and in English it just seems to carry on from the fifth. We have the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the story finishes at the end of Deuteronomy with Moses' death, and then Joshua just seems to pick the story up at exactly the same point, and Joshua, Moses' successor, carries on the leadership of God's people. So what's different? And why is this book not read annually in the synagogue, whereas Deuteronomy is? You see, in our Bibles it looks no different, does it? It just carries straight on and the story continues. But to the Jew there is a profound difference between Deuteronomy and Joshua. Deuteronomy is part of the law of Moses. Joshua isn't. Quite a different book. And of course, if you really think about it, Deuteronomy is packed with what I've called legislation. It's packed with the laws of God. There isn't a single law anywhere in the book of Joshua or in any of the books that follow it. We are out of the law country, or in a word, we are out of the foundation of the nation. We are now into the outworking of that constitution. So the first five books of our Bible are the basic constitution of the people of Israel. That's their foundation. And the rest of the Old Testament is how it all works out. So that when you put the book of Joshua, which is the first non-law book in the Bible, against the first five books you see a remarkable change. I've tried just to indicate this. See, the next six books are all what we call history. In the next uh, video that I'm going to make with you, I'll show you that the Jews don't call these books history at all. They actually call them prophecy. But I'm afraid we tend to think of them as history and the story continued. But when you read those five books and then these six books, then you realise the contrast between them. This is the law, the foundation of Judaism, and they usually call the first five books the Torah, which means instruction. And basically every Jewish rabbi is instructed in those five books and they're read through once a year. But here we have in the Jewish scriptures, these are called the former prophets. We don't ever think of them like that. And in the next video we're going to look at why. Here we have God's promises to them, but here we have the fulfilment of those promises, how God kept his word. Here God says what he will do, but here he does it. And once again this grace-gratitude theme comes out. The grace of God is very clear in the first five books. In the next six we shall see quite a bit of gratitude, not quite enough, but quite a lot. Here the redemption, here the righteousness, here the legislation in the law of Moses, but here the application of that law to their life and how it all worked out in practice. Here are the promises to bless obedience and in Joshua their obedience is blessed. They do what God tells them and Jericho's walls fall. 
even though what God told them to do seemed crazy, irrelevant and useless, but they did it and God blessed them and the land was given to them because they obeyed God. But I'm afraid there are also some examples in these books of the opposite, of where they were disobedient and they were cursed and unfortunately though Joshua tells us how they were given the land, the second book of Kings tells us how it was taken away from them again. It's the tragic story now of how the promises to bless them if they were obedient and to curse them if they were disobedient, these books tell us actually how those promises were fulfilled. They were blessed at first and then they were cursed and from Joshua through to the end of Kings it's the sad story of how they got the promised land and how they lost it again. The book of Joshua is mainly a book of obedience but the seeds of disobedience are there. They got Jericho all right but they didn't get the next town, Ai, because they were disobedient. So the seeds were already there of losing the land but it didn't happen for many centuries and then they lost it totally again. So here the covenant was established between God and the people of Israel but here it was expressed, it was practically applied to their life and so we can see the first five books as cause and the next six books as the effect and you can explain everything that happens in these books in terms of what was said here so that we, we are into a different part of the Old Testament. In English unfortunately we don't notice that because there are no separate headings, it's just one book after another but I hope you can see that there is a sharp contrast and we're into something quite different. Now one of the big questions about all these historical books is did it actually happen? And I want to mention now a trend in modern scholarship which is very dangerous and that is to say that the truth in the Bible is not historical or scientific but truth of moral and religious value. Now let me spell that out. People widely believe that the Bible is full of truth but what kind of truth? And to say it is a book of moral and religious truth but not necessarily scientific or historical truth is a very shaky position. Behind this distinction lies the concept of myth or legend if you like or saga and the idea is that it doesn't matter whether it actually happened or not but it still has a truth to teach us. Do you follow me? Now of course there are parts of the Bible that are like that. Jesus' parables are all technically myth. It doesn't matter whether there was an actual prodigal son or not. The important thing is the story has a truth in it. Do you follow me? And it's very clear that Jesus' parables are like that, that he made up the story to communicate a truth. But when you start saying the whole Bible is like that, then you are into very different territory. Do you follow me? So when you start saying that the stories in the Bible, like the story of Jericho, they have a truth but don't believe that they actually happened. They are myth. 
containing truth. Not lies, but truth. Now, that development has happened apace. It virtually treats everything in the Bible as parables. Do you follow me? That they are all just legendary stories made up to convey moral and religious truth to us, something like Aesop's fables. And none of Aesop's fables actually happen, but they all contain a truth. If you've read them, you know. Now that began in the 19th century to be applied to the book of Genesis. And it began to be said Adam and Eve didn't ever actually live. It is a myth, it is a story to communicate a truth. And the truth is that if you tell somebody not to touch something, they want to go and touch it. And that's the truth in Genesis 3. You follow me? I'm not now advocating this, I'm just trying to explain to you what's been happening. So at first Adam and Eve were regarded as fable, as parable, as Adam, Adam was every man, not a particular man, he was every man. And Eden was everywhere, not a particular place, but contained a truth which could be dug out of it. To get at that truth you have to demythologize the story. You have to get rid of the story part and just keep the truth part of it. Well, it soon began to apply it to others, to Noah next, and Noah's flood didn't happen. But the story of the flood has a moral or religious truth in it for us. So the Bible became not a book of history, but a book of values. That's the favourite term that's being used nowadays. It's got value, but it's moral and religious, not historical or scientific. Then it began to be applied to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Then Jonah began to be treated as a myth, even though he's presented as a factual man with a, a genealogy in the book of Kings. And now it has even got right into the New Testament and in fact many now church figures question whether the virgin birth actually happened. But it is a story with a truth in it. You see, it's got value for us but not historical. Then it finally was applied to the resurrection of Jesus himself. And we have bishops saying that it doesn't matter if Jesus' bones lie rotting in the Middle East, that doesn't affect the story of the resurrection. And the story contains the truth that Jesus' influence went on after his death. Now this is a process that uh, was particularly applied to the book of Joshua and the story of Jericho. And the reason why all this developed was to make the Bible acceptable in a scientific age because this enabled the miracles to be dismissed as stories and not actual events. And you can see the motivation behind this. Well now what's wrong with that? Because you see the book of Joshua is full of what a scientific age says are impossible things. The walls of Jericho is, are not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the sun and the moon standing still for a whole day. And if it wasn't them that stood still but the earth that stopped revolving, why wasn't everybody flung off into space when the whole earth stopped with a jerk? And so that is claimed to be a myth. The truth in the story is that God wants to help us win our battles. But the historical truth is not there. Now, I hope I've said enough to show you this development. It is very widespread. 
So when you turn to the book of Joshua, you're faced with rivers drying up and walls collapsing and sun and moon standing still. What do you make of all that in a scientific age? Well, let's assume that they are fiction for a moment and that they are simply legends. So we cut them out, we demythologize the book. What's left? If you cut the miracles out of the books of the Bible, you are left with a purely human history. And you might as well study the history of ancient Tibet. I'm sure you'd find some value in that. But this is serious. Once you cut out the miraculous part and say that's ridiculous, it, it couldn't happen, you are actually cutting out God's part in history and you're only left then with man's part. And what's the point of studying man's history 3,000 years ago? I see no point in it at all. I might as well lecture to you on Chinese culture in the Ding ministry or whatever it is. See, it, it's, as, it's as irrelevant as that because in fact the miraculous is absolutely fundamental to the Bible history. So fundamental that if you cut that out, there really isn't anything left worth studying. Now let's take this a little further than that. Joshua presents us with real people in real places. Real places, the Jordan River is a real place, you can go and see it. I've baptized people in it. Jericho is a real place, I've stood on the ruins of it. Jerusalem is a real place, you can go and stand in the streets. And the people, the Canaanites were real people, archaeology demonstrates that. The Israelites are real people, their descendants are still with us. Furthermore, the book of Joshua claims to be written by eyewitnesses. It's written in the first person plural. We marched around the walls of Jericho. Now that's a direct claim of people who said we were there, we saw what happened. Why should it be thought that a scholar in the 20th century AD knows better what happened than someone who was actually there? It's a strange prejudice that comes to such a conclusion. So the book claims to be a record of events written at the time. And one of the frequent little phrases that comes in the book is, and it is there to this day. So people could go and check up on what had been recorded. Now to dismiss all this as myth is a very arrogant thing to do, unless you have very good evidence. Furthermore, archaeology has been busy confirming a great deal of Joshua. I'll tell you more about the archaeology of Jericho in a moment. But there are other cities that they conquered, cities like Hadzor uh, and Lachish and a number of other cities. And archaeologists have been busy on all these cities and what they have discovered is that over a period of 50 years, the entire culture of all those cities changed radically to a much simpler lifestyle. They were very sophisticated cities, they were very elaborate, wealthy cities with a culture of their own, yet over the space of 50 years all these cities have been utterly destroyed and a new city built on them of a very different culture. That's a remarkable thing for archaeologists to have discovered and the dating of that change exactly fits 
with Joshua's account of how they took those cities over a period of 50 years. Now, let's be quite clear that archaeology cannot prove a miracle because it can only examine the results of the miracle and wasn't there to observe what happened at the time. Archaeology can find fallen walls, but it can't find out who knocked them down. For that we either have to say it was a sheer coincidence and they fell at just the right moment, or we've got to say it wasn't chance at all and that God was also busy at the time. And to God, knocking a wall down is nothing, absolutely nothing. Now there are also parallels to some of the events in Joshua. For example, the Jordan River regularly dries up in time of flood. Now that sounds a contradiction, but I'll tell you how it happens. It is a very meandering river as it goes down the Jordan Valley. And in flood, when it meanders, it undercuts the banks on the curve. And very often, even to this day, when it undercuts one of the big banks, the bank falls in and temporarily dams the stream until it rises and gets over the dam. And it may stop for four or five hours. So these things haven't just happened once, they happen again. Furthermore, big buildings do collapse. I don't know how many cathedrals in England have lost their spires and towers this way. They've just suddenly collapsed. Now, I'm not trying to explain the miracles away, but I'm saying these are not isolated events. What is significant about them in the book of Joshua is that they happened at exactly the minute that God said they would happen and happened just when they were most needed. So you've still got a problem even if you try and explain it away in naturalistic terms. The heart of the issue is, was God involved or not? And if you remove the supernatural events, you remove the divine activity and you reduce the Bible to human activity and it then becomes like any other history book of no more relevance to us today than ancient China. You see, the Bible is not the history of Israel. There is so much excluded. It's not a complete history of Israel. Joshua covers 40 years, yet most of what happened in those 40 years is not recorded. And the fall of Jericho fills about three chapters. It's out of all proportion to be a history of Israel. It is actually the history of the God of Israel. The Bible is not the history of what Israel did, but it's the history of what the God of Israel did. And if you cut out what he did, you cut out most of it because the reason why certain things are given a lot of chapters and other things no chapters. When God was doing something, a lot of attention is given. When God wasn't busy, no attention. That's how the Bible is selected because every history is a selection of events according to what the historian thinks is important or significant. And the Bible historians say the only important things in our history are what God did. Because it's not just the history of the God of Israel, it's the history of God and Israel. It's the history of their covenant relationship and it's the history of how they got on with each other and how they didn't get on with each other and how God reacted to what they did. And so it's a history of the God and Israel, what he said and did. He's the real hero of the drama. Can I put it as strongly as this? If God had not intervened on their behalf, they would never have got the promised land. 
it's as simple as that. Because humanly speaking, it was an impossible task for a bunch of ex-slaves who had no military training to go in and take a well-fortified land and replace a culture that was far superior to theirs in humanistic terms. It's impossible. So if you cut the supernatural out and you cut God out, you've got nothing left of what we call the history of the Bible. It is not the history of Israel. There must have been many, many things they did that are not here. We can put it like this. The covenant at Sinai was like a marriage. The betrothal began with Abraham. That's when God became engaged to this people. At Sinai, he got married. The rest of the years in Sinai were the honeymoon. It was a good deal longer than intended, but the bride wasn't ready to look after a home yet. So uh, the honeymoon lasted far, far longer. But Joshua begins the marriage. They're home from their honeymoon now. They're setting up house together, God and Israel, in the place he wants them to live together, the place he's chosen. Now, how did the marriage work out? That's the real question. And I'm afraid it worked out badly. But since God hates divorce, he never let them go. That's the beauty of it. He refused to divorce them, had every reason to. So we have this sad story of a marriage that didn't work out, but the faults were all on the wife's side. And God constantly called Israel, my wife, I'm your husband. And when she went after other gods, he said, now you've become an adulteress and even a prostitute. But it's all in marriage terms, all the way through the Old Testament. What happened in Sinai was a wedding service. But a wedding's one thing and a marriage is another. And working out the marriage after the honeymoon, that's when the real task begins. And it oh, doesn't begin. Well now, let's uh, look next at the shape of the book. I always find it helpful to see the overall shape of a book, the structure of it, the outline. And once I've got that, I can fit the bits in. Too often, I'm afraid, we read the Bible in bits. Can you imagine reading an Agatha Christie novel ten sentences at a time, once a week? Can you imagine? I mean, by the time you got to chapter 8, you'd have totally forgotten what happened in chapter 1. And yet we treat the Bible that way, which is the craziest way to read it. The best way to read the Bible is right through a book at a time. That's why I'm making these videos, to get you into the book. Every sentence in a book takes its meaning from the book. That's the context of every text. And a text out of context is a pretext. And if you can understand that, you'll understand everything else I'll say. <laughs> Let's look at the outline of Joshua then. It's a sandwich in three parts, two thin slices of bread and a lot of filling in the middle. There is chapter 1 and then chapters 23 and 24 are the bread in the sandwich. And they are all about this man Joshua. And the, the prologue, if you like, is his commission from God and the epilogue is his final sermon and death and burial. So this book covers the life of Joshua from the age of 80 
to the age of 120, 40 years. Interestingly enough, that's exactly the same period of Moses' life covered by Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy from 80 to 120, 40 years. So these two men had the same period of leadership. The difference was that Moses was a lawgiver as well as a leader. Joshua was only a leader and lawgiving is finished. In the middle, chapters 2 to 22, is a simple account of how they took the land that God had promised them, in spite of the fact that it was already occupied. Chapters 2 to 5 talk about entering the land, how they got over the Jordan and into the promised land for the first time. One lovely little touch is this, the day they got over the Jordan, what is it? Stopped. Manna, manna stopped and for the first time they had fruit and cornflakes and they had a proper meal. It, interesting, as soon as they got over the Jordan, God stopped feeding them. Now you've got to feed yourselves, he said, but he'd given them a land flowing with milk and honey. So that's entering chapters 2 to 5. Chapter 6 to 12 were how they conquered the land and the strategy is terrific. You, you divide to conquer and so Joshua drove a wedge straight through the middle of the promised land and having divided the enemy troops into two halves so they couldn't line up against him, he then cleaned up the north and then he cleaned up the south. Brilliant strategy and God showed him how to do it. But uh, so he conquered the center first, then the south, sorry, then the south, then the north. I gave it to you wrong way round. And then in chapter 12, we have a list of 24 kings that Joshua defeated. Now, of course, a king wasn't necessarily a king over an empire. Uh, the leader of a, a tribe would be a king, a sheikh, if you like. Uh, but there are 24 kings that he... Thing. Then came the task of dividing the land up between the tribes who'd conquered it. So we have three simple parts in the middle of Joshua, entering the land, conquering it, and then dividing it up. And that's when they had a national lottery, but more of that later. <laughs> Literally true, they had a national lottery for it, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Lotteries are biblical right up to the day of Pentecost and then they become wrong <laughs> and I'm sure you know why that is. But remember they chose the replacement for Judas Iscariot by lottery? Well they did it not because they were appealing to chance but I'll tell you why they did it later. But they had a national lottery to divide it. Now have you got the shape of the book, Joshua? A sandwich, his call and commission, which came from both God and the people. That's going to be a very interesting point. Then he led them to enter the land, to conquer it, and divided it properly among the different tribes. And then he preached a final sermon to them, a magnificent sermon. Choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my household, I'll serve the Lord. Tremendous dying, you remember a man's dying words, don't you? And that was his last message and then he's buried. Well, having got the shape, let's begin to look at it in greater detail. Very simple structure and a very obvious outline. I have to point out that I'm afraid the chapter divisions in our English Bible 
are so often in the wrong place. I wish I'd been able to do it, but uh, in, in fact, I honestly believe it should never have been done. I believe very firmly that the Bible should never have had chapter numbers in it and never verse numbers. You would then have to know your Bible. But we've become text people, as if God just gave us a box full of individual verses that we can quote to support anything we wish to prove. And the Bible's become a source of proof texts for people. And you can prove anything you like from the Bible. I can prove atheism from the Bible. There's a verse that says there is no God in the Psalms. Then goes on to say the fool has said in his heart there is no God, but there are the words, there is no God. You can prove anything from the Bible by proving texts. But the context, God gave us a library of books. He didn't give us one book, he gave us a library of books. And each book has its own character. And we must study the book as a whole if we're really going to understand the Bible message. So let's look at his commission first. He was 80 and the call came to him from two directions. I like this. I believe we need this double call if we're going to remain faithful to God. You need a call from God and you need a call from God's people. And if it's really a call from God, God's people will recognise it and confirm it. Too many people say, God has told me to do this and it hasn't been confirmed by God's people. Other people have been forced into Christian work because God's people have told them to and they haven't heard from God about it. But when you've got both, I'm now in a travelling ministry, it's not what I would have chosen but I live out of a suitcase, but I heard a direct call from God through a prophetic word, but I checked it out with elders and the elders after weighing it carefully said, this is of God. And that's made me secure. I can do it knowing this double confirmation, God and his people. Look for that double call. So Joshua was called by God. It said, God said, Moses is dead. Well, Joshua knew that. But God said, Moses is dead, now you. And he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise. Moses got them out of Egypt, you're to get them into Canaan. And those two tasks are very important. He says you will prosper and be successful. He doesn't mean you'll become wealthy. The word prosper has been misunderstood in the Bible. It doesn't mean wealth, but there's a prosperity gospel that has got hold of a lot of people. But prosper, prosperous means to achieve what you set out to do. That's a wonderful promise. May the Lord's people prosper. Not may they become wealthy, but may they succeed in what they set out to do for the Lord. And God said there are two things are very important. Number one, your morale. When you go into battle, tactics are important, strategy is important, but the thing that will win the battle is morale. World War II turned on General Montgomery. He became insufferable in victory, as Winston Churchill put it. He was unconquerable in battle but unsufferable in victory or something. But nevertheless, the Battle of Al Alamein, North Africa, that squeaky little voice, we're going to beat this chap Rommel, we're going to win this battle, and a new voice of morale raised the Eighth Army in the desert in World War II. And that was the turning point of the war. 
and it was largely on morale. And that's why God said to Joshua, your leadership will depend on morale. Be of good courage. You must be courageous. You must say, we're going to win. Your courage will take the, the battle to victory. Very important point. But the second important point is morality. And he said, Joshua, you must keep my statutes. You must obey my laws. Morale and morality, the two things that God requires of a leader. Interesting, aren't they? Well, Joshua went and told the people, I'm now your leader, Moses is dead. And do you know what the people said? They said, be strong and courageous. And the people actually repeated word for word what God had told him privately. What a lovely confirmation, what a witness. And the people said this, and you may smile at uh, this, but they actually said to him, just as we fully obeyed Moses, <laughs> we will now obey you. Now you've laughed at that, but actually you shouldn't, because they had. This is a new generation, remember? The older generation hadn't obeyed Moses, but these were young men. This was a new, whole new generation. And they had already conquered Moab and Ammon when they obeyed Moses. They'd, so they weren't quite so disobedient as you thought when I read that. They genuinely meant it. They said, we obeyed Moses, we're going to obey you now. But be strong and of a good courage. We don't want a leader who, who gets cowardly or who gets doubts about the crusade. May the Lord be with you as he was with Moses, they said. So now we come to the actual heart of the book. And uh, he led them to enter the land, conquer it and divide it, all related to the land, the land, the land. And that dominates the whole book. Now Jordan was the barrier. It was in flood and it was 20 feet deep. There are no bridges. And the fords were all well under water at this time of year. It's the flood time, the rainy time. The first thing he does before entering is to send spies in. But he's not going to send 12. <laughs> he sends two. Perhaps he remembers that the two spies <laughs> came back with a good report. But he only sent two, not 12. Now listen, faith is not foolhardy. Jesus emphasized, sit down and count the cost before you go to battle. It's very wise to suss out the situation, to find out what you're facing. Foolhardiness is not faith, and there's a very narrow dividing line between the two. Some people who do things by faith are really being foolish. They haven't thought it all out. They don't know really what they're taking on. And that is not faith. Faith isn't blind. Faith looks at the situation, sends the spies in, now find out what's the situation. And above all, he didn't want to report on the military might, he wanted to report on their morale. What's their morale like now that they've seen us coming? Well, the spies found lodging in a brothel with a prostitute called Rahav. She became an ancestor of Jesus. The most incredible story a prostitute, and she took them in and she hid them. And the men of the city heard that spies had come in 
and they came looking for them and she hid them under straw in the roof. And when the men had gone, she sent them west. She said, don't go back to the river, they'll be looking for you. Go further west into the hills and then in a few days go back. She saved their lives. Why did she do it? She said, because I believe in your God. He's going to give you this land and I want to be on your side. That's faith, incredible faith. And one result is that she is held up in the New Testament by two of the writers in the New Testament as a wonderful example of faith. Not a good woman, but a woman of faith. And God can do more with a, a bad woman who's got faith than a good woman who doesn't have faith. We often forget that. So here was this prostitute and she hid them and saved their lives and so they actually, remembering the blood of the Passover lamb, they said, hang something scarlet out of your window and we won't touch it. We'll pass over your house. Interesting, isn't it? So she hung something that looked like blood out of her window, a scarlet cord. And therefore her house was the only house that didn't fall down. Well now, that's what happened before. Uh, what happened during the crossing into the sea? Well, the, the Jordan dried up, but it dried up just as the priest's feet who were carrying the ark touched the water. Yes, it means that further up the river the bank caved in and dammed the stream temporarily, but why did it do it at just that moment? See, there's so many coincidences in the Bible that statistically it can't be. It just cannot be. The odds are much too high. And so the people got across on dry land virtually, whereas the spies would have to swim across earlier. What was really happening? This generation had never seen the crossing of the Red Sea, so God's doing it for them again. Oh, lovely. They'd heard about the Red Sea, but did they really believe that God could do such things? They were a whole new generation, so now they know the God of their fathers is with them too. That's, I believe, why it happened. A repetition of the Red Sea for the new generation. Well, I think my time for this talk is gone, so we'll stop there and we've got a lot more to do in the next talk, so come back and we'll continue with the story of Joshua. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.